This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 64 with Zach Gautier from Triple Fit College Counseling. Really helping your child figure out school and really figure out a love for school early on. It sounds like a basic thing and it doesn't necessarily sound like financial advice, but the rewards that it reaps four or six years later as a student's looking to college, it really is profound. It's time for a new American dream, one that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench, and I'm here with my co-host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing today, Mindy? I am doing fantastic, Scott. I am so so excited for today's show. I know I say this every week, but this one, I really, really am excited for this guest. Outside of Rich and Marcus from Paychecks and Balances, this is the show I was most looking forward to recording and the one that I am most excited to share with our listeners. Today's guest, like you said, is Zach Gautier from Triple Fit College Counseling. He reached out to me a couple of months ago and he wanted to share some tips for financing college. And when he reached out to me, he gave me just a list of tips that I'd never heard before. And granted, I haven't been in college since you were a baby, Scott, but uh, my oldest is 12 and it hasn't come up before, but she is 12. So it's going to come up and it's going to come up in a big way. And I don't have a 529 plan. I know I'm a terrible financial independence seeker because I don't have all these things optimized. Um, So this show was hugely helpful for me. And it's, it's going to be hugely helpful for anybody who has kids who have not yet graduated from college. It's going to be most helpful for people in a similar situation to where I am, where their kids haven't started high school or are just starting high school. But there's tips in here for people with kids in high school and college as well. This is the episode to bookmark and listen to with your kids before they start high school. It's the episode to listen to with your kids when they're in high school. And it's the episode to share with your kids, even if they're already in college. Yeah, I love it. I mean, one of the things to note before you listen to the episode is that this is all about the college planning process and figuring out how to set yourself up for success to one, get into a good college, two, get a potential merit scholarship, and then three, fund college as efficiently as possible from there and all on a bunch of tips and tricks about that. So if that's not applicable to you, this may be one that you can pass over and come back next week or listen to and share with somebody who it is going to be relevant to. But we want to give you fair warning that this is a very specific audience. And if you're in your 20s and not going to have kids, this may not be applicable to you. So share with somebody. Don't just say, don't listen, Scott. Uh, Share with somebody that this could work with. Well, of course, it's a great episode. It's going to provide a lot of value, right? I don't have kids. It's a lot of very valuable to me because when I do have kids, then I will uh, apply these, this learning. Yeah, this was fabulous. Becoming a Navy Federal Credit Union member could help you earn more and save more. Take advantage of competitive rates with their certificate options or start saving for that next big money milestone with a low minimum deposit. Add money at any time and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe a live-in flip, or feeling ready to consolidate some of that high-interest credit card debt, you could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed-rate home equity loan with zero closing costs, or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses much more manageable. 
To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loans subject to approval. TurboTax experts make all your moves count. Filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side hustled your way to some extra income, flipped a house, or finally bought your first rental property, your moves made a big difference in your life last year. Now it's time to make the most of your moves. Switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split, with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets. Dr. Zach Gautier from Triple Fit College Consulting. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going today? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Like I said in the intro, I am super excited to bring this guest on today because Zach reached out to me to, God, it's been a hundred years since you reached out, but you sent me this note about how to pay for college for people who aren't actually in college yet and even not in high school yet. And in some cases, and this was just so interesting. I've got a 12 year old, so I do have to start thinking about paying for college. Why don't we start off with how you paid for college, Zach? Yeah, absolutely. For some reason, the way that my mind's wired, I've just always, I hate wasting time. And so as I started looking at my own undergraduate and what I wanted to do, started finding a couple of unique ways to expedite that process. And so went through, like many kids do today, ended up taking some AP courses, but more importantly, I ended up doing a semester on a college campus before I went to actual college as part of my high school. And so ended up going into undergrad carrying like 24 credits into college. And then I found out about this kind of magical thing called a CLEP test where you can just take a test and they give you college credit. (laughs) And I'm like, I like that more than studying for classes. And so ended up clepping out of like another 36 hours of my undergrad. And, And so because of that, ended up graduating a year early and could have really graduated in two and a half years, but stretched it into three and just started to realize that 
by having levels of efficiency in how you approach undergraduate, you can save an incredible amount of money. And so that really, I think, kind of birthed that in me of that desire. And then over the last 15 years, I've been worked in high schools, worked with families, and have just been able to walk alongside families as they've been doing, you know, going through their own journey and trying to share some of this information with them so that hopefully they can dive into the things that they really want to learn about very quickly. And hopefully that that's a benefit for them both in time and in money. That's awesome. And we're, we're very lucky to have you because you've devoted so much of your career and time and energy and thought and passion into helping people make college more affordable and prepare themselves for that, right? Would you mind starting off? Um, what are some of the first things you'd be thinking about if your child is, uh, you know, maybe just coming into high school or about to enter in there, you know, to start, to start this planning process? Yeah, absolutely. So part of the reason that I reached out to Mindy in the first place is just because I think a lot of times families hear these kind of unicorn type stories where this student dedicates a year of their life, they find a million dollars through all these scholarships, and that transforms their life. And while that is an option, and that is an approach that people can take and realize benefit from it, the reality is I think that there's a more systematic approach that can start to uh, really transform college options. Options. And one of those biggest uh, factors that can happen is to make effective choices in students' elementary and middle school years so that then when they get into high school, they're really putting themselves in the best position possible. So uh, a couple of thoughts that I have is if you, you know, if a student is before high school age, the reality is that the money that's given and the scholarships that are given to students, the vast majority of that money is really dictated on two things. A student's reading and English ability, and then their math skills. And so if we think about that and kind of reverse engineer where we want a student to be at 18 and when they're receiving financial aid, all of that starts in really early elementary. And so it sounds so simple, but one of the best (laughs) financial choices that somebody can make is choosing to take time to read with their student. And when they're with them and being able to birth in them this desire for lifelong learning and being able to really engage in school, because the student that is successful in those early years statistically, it shows they're going to be in a really strong place and in a place of a lot of options once they get to their high school years. So establishing that incredibly solid academic foundation in those early periods and being a parent that's invested in that and really helping to guide that early skill. And if there is a challenge, you know, different kids learn differently and there's different struggles. As a parent, really trying to not kind of just hope that that fixes itself, but being able to intervene and help a student if they're struggling in school early on. Yeah, I have uh, two kids. One is 12 and one is nine. And it wasn't really until the nine-year-old started going through elementary school that it really clicked. Oh, all of these math skills like stack on top of each other. So if you're struggling in first grade, second grade is not going to be easier. Third grade is not going to be easier. And, you know, when you start in first grade, it's easy. You know, here's addition and going through just doing even like flashcards with your kids is so important. And I remember my daughter was in, my oldest daughter was I think in second or third grade and the dean actually sent a note to everybody and said, please continue to work on your basic math facts with your kids. Just because they graduated from the addition doesn't mean that they can forget it now, you know, so keep going through the flashcards and doing those with them. And then now I see she's in grade and I'm seeing the little third grader doing all of these things again. And 
reading is another huge thing. If you can't even understand the problem, you're never going to be able to answer it. These are things I like that you're starting pre junior high even because you can't be an F minus student all the way through fifth grade. And then all of a sudden your A plus is in sixth grade. And you know, these little things really add up. And I'm seeing this in my own kids now and it's really, really helpful. Yeah, it's incredibly true. I mean, I've spent most of my time as a high school educator. And so obviously I'd like to think that my work with high schoolers is really, really important. But the reality is so much of their educational foundation and their educational trajectory is established by the end of eighth grade. And so not neglecting that component and really helping your child figure out school and really figure out a love for school early on. It sounds like a basic thing and it doesn't necessarily sound like financial advice, but the rewards that it reaps four or six years later as a student's looking to college, it really is profound. What are some uh, interventions that you've seen from maybe your experience that have been very effective? Kids who maybe have been struggling and then here's how the parents stepped in and actually corrected that problem. Yeah. So, I mean, the probably the biggest one that I see is the attitude and approach that the parent takes towards school. Because there's one category of a challenge that a student has of if they have a diagnosed learning disability or difference and just they're going to approach learning in a very different context. But I feel like the majority of situations that I see, students can learn and they can access the information, but it becomes more about the attitude that they have. And so as a parent, trying to be an encourager in that of, yeah, school may not always be fun, but here's why it's good, you know? And so I think as a parent, and I have three young boys, and so I even have to check myself sometimes of not approaching it in this sense of bad-mouthing school or being kind of cantankerous of, oh yeah, that's totally lame. You're never going to use that. (laughs) You know, that's the kind of advice that doesn't instill inspiration into a student. So, So I think the attitudinal piece is a big factor. If it is a more severe kind of clearly identified learning disability, I think really reaching out and having active engagement with the educators at the school of trying to get uh, clarity from them because they're the ones best equipped to speak into what the particular situation is for that student. How how do you do that without being a helicopter parent? (laughs) That's actually a really, really astute question. Uh, And it's a fine balance. I mean, I think some of it is if as a parent, if you're approaching a teacher or, you know, a learning specialist at the school, really approaching with a sense of humility of, hey, here's what I'm seeing at home. I don't know if teachers are seeing that, but I have some concern and would just want to dialogue through it. So I think addressing it from a stance of partnership and not necessarily kind of a finger wagging type moment of this is how you should be doing your job. You know, and, it's, and when it's your own kid and you care about him so much, it's easy to fall into that place. But I think just trying to approach it in a professional manner and approach it in a way of, hey, I think there's an issue here. Let's work together. And if, Because the educators and the parents, they're both seeking the same thing. They want to see the students succeed. And so just continuing to remember that as you approach the teachers and learning specialists in the school. As a parent, I will say that sometimes I definitely, not even sometimes, I definitely fall into that helicopter parenting uh, when it comes to homework. But you know, like you said, you care about them so much, you want them to succeed. And it makes me very sad when I see kids who are obviously struggling and they're obviously not getting the help at home. And if you want your kids to go to college, you need to encourage them in grade school and in yeah. middle school. And, and I- 
And I think the one, you know, I guess the one disclaimer that I would give is the reservation that I have, even of starting to talk about the funding of college this early on, is I don't want it to become the kind of thing where it ratchets up stress for kids or it creates anxiety and panic in the parents. That's really not where we need to be, but instead just at a place of hopefully loving the process and really learning how to love education and schooling. So that's my one caveat. I mean, that's the, the challenge if you start talking about this place. And if a student's in first or second grade, that, that does feel like overkill. And so I don't mean it for that, but just to have a sense of understanding that, like you were saying, Mindy, where a student's at early on, unless there's external correction they're probably going to continue on that same course. So if the student hasn't learned those effective habits early on, then when they get to the high school and transcripts matter and GPA matters, it's hard to turn that ship at that point. That is very true. I didn't turn my ship around. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I still did okay, but I could have done a lot better if I would have had my ship turned around. I'm not really sure why I didn't. This isn't about me. Uh, So what are some things that parents can be doing pre-high school age to be saving for college because not everybody is guaranteed a scholarship and, you know, maybe you do all these things right and it doesn't work out. Yeah, I think for from a financial perspective, the biggest avenue that is looked at is 529 plans. And I'm not necessarily an expert on those. And each state has different regulations that guide the 529s. I think that that issue of having a tax sheltered avenue to be able to save money, put it aside, I think it can have a lot of merit. I think it really depends on individual situations. And so the secondary kind of approach, and honestly, the one that I'm moving into, I had 529 plans for my sons, moving more to an approach really from Brandon Turner and what he advocates. But I think it makes a lot of sense to think about an income producing asset and to try to identify, are there ways that you can, whether it is real estate or some other avenue where you can use that same money, still have that same level of intentionality, but ultimately put it into an asset that will help pay for college when the time comes rather than having that money just go to the institution itself. So that's the challenge, I think, for a 529 is at the end of the day, those funds can only be used for approved educational expenses. And so if you give all of that money to the institution, you don't have that resource. The only resource you have on the back end is the degree itself, which is really worthwhile and I think has value. But if you can maintain an asset while getting that, uh, the degree as well, I think that's the better tact. So what you're referring to is Brandon bought a fourplex. And when did he close on that, Scott? When his daughter was like six days old or something? It might have been like like around the day that she was born. Yeah. 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 He bought a fourplex and got a 15-year loan on it. So by the time she is ready to go to college or almost, you know, through high school, the property will be paid off and then he can either sell it to fund her whole college degree or he can continue to have the asset for her to just generate money. And that's, that's, or, yeah, or sorry to, sorry to chime in here, or he can refinance the property, pull all the cash out, not have a taxable event, put it on a 30 year mortgage (laughs) on his college, his daughter's education and the next generation's college education. I'm a big fan of this approach. (laughs) Yeah. I love this. I just love all these. Like it never would have occurred to me to buy a fourplex for my kids. Um, I'm getting ready to buy a triplex. So yeah, I could fund college for my kids based on my triplex. 
That's yeah. such a great idea. But, ba- um, yeah. but basically, if you're listening, you know, you're following, there's kind of two options that were kind of coming up here, it sounds like, right? One is use the 529 plan, which is a you know, tax-sheltered, tax-deferred way to save for college and invest through that. But again, you're not left with anything besides a plan that can pay for higher education there. Use real estate as a means to do that or use some other after-tax means to save for college that will uh, help you kind of save up those assets and put aside money there. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the challenge is the best thing that you can do, I think, is be in a strong financial position and having really been intentional in whichever choice you make. But part of what we're going to talk about is I think if somebody really follows through with a lot of the principles that you talk about on this show and you've identified and find yourself in a place of financial independence or retiring early, congrats, that's awesome. But that also creates a separate set of challenges because of how colleges evaluate financial aid, evaluate assets, and determine the kind of that's kind of scholarships and aid that a student's going to get when they get to college. Can you kind of go into some more detail there? How, how would being a early retiree affect some things like FAFSA? Yeah. So kind of skipping to that, the, I mean, the reality is schools look at your, I mean, so FAFSA itself, the free application for student aid is a federal tool that's used that is really dictated just based off of your tax returns. And it's a pretty blunt instrument that kicks out this term, your uh, estimated family contribution or your EFC. And that's a based on everything that's shown on your taxes. Here's what we think you can contribute to school. The challenge with that is the schools that are giving the highest amount of need-based aid, so aid that's based off of a family's income and financial situation, they're going to use a secondary tool called the CSS profile that is going to be much more precise. And I think ultimately for most of your listeners, if they're in a financially independent state, they're going to get hurt pretty significantly by going through the CSS profile because all of their assets, their you know the all of the places that their income comes from. Most schools are going to identify that and say, "Looks like you have been really diligent, and you have a lot of cash reserves. You can pay for college. We're not going to give you money to recruit your kid to come here, so they're not going to get a lot of need-based aid." So then the second category of aid that I think most of the listeners really should focus on is the merit-based aid. So, and the majority of that merit-based aid is based upon the academic strength of a student. So that's why starting so effectively early on is going to ultimately put them in a position where regardless of the family's financial circumstances, they're still going to be able to access scholarships and grants that are going to be used as a tool to recruit them to come to the college. So you're saying that if I'm looking to achieve financial freedom and I build up a solid 401k plan, I've got a couple of rental properties and some after-tax brokerage account funds that I might have a very low income, which would show up as, which would, you know, in theory, you'd think would kind of help me apply for, you know, qualify for FAFSA on a low income basis. But because my assets are large, the secondary tool, what was it called? The C... CSS profile. The CSS profile is going to expose my net worth and make sure that I'm excluded from need-based aid. And so I need to plan through other avenues in order to get there. Is that, am I reading that correctly? I think so. I mean, obviously this is very general advice and each 
person's situation is going to be different. But for the most part, the CSS profile is really designed to be able to splice through kind of different tax shelters, different things, and get a true sense of, do you or do you not have the resources to be able to pay for college? And so the schools that you see, sometimes you'll see, and typically it's the highly selective institutions where they'll say, we're going to cover 100% of demonstrated need. That's kind of a big term that you'll see sometimes as you're reading articles on this. And that's that's an incredible commitment from these schools, but they're really trying to then determine is this a family that is, you know, that everything is tax protected and kind of their assets are distributed in a way that the FAFSA is not going to see it? And if that's the case, they don't necessarily want to give significant aid to that student because they feel like the family has the resources to be able to pay for college. Okay. So, so it sounds like if you're a family that is going to moving toward financial freedom and kind of getting there, you know, by the time your kids are going to go to college that we're going to focus on the merit-based thing. Suppose some of our listeners are not going to get there and are going to potentially qualify for that need. I don't think we're going to get into that discussion too much today, but is there a resource or place they can go to look to find more information offline? (laughs) You know, I mean, I think the biggest place is really with the financial aid office at a particular school that they're thinking about, because the reality is there's not a one singular approach that colleges and universities use to determine the aid that they're going to give. So because of how divergent those policies can be, if you know, hey, my target institution is Vanderbilt, then you want to go and look and say, reach out to the financial aid office and get a sense. Because for some families, even upper middle class families, they may be able to go to a school that does give 100%, cover 100% of need cheaper than they could go for to their local state university. I mean, I had a family that the student started at CU Boulder and he was essentially paying full price as an in-state resident at CU Boulder. And even though both parents worked, they had a good upper middle class income, he went to school cheaper at Vanderbilt because of the way that they covered needs. So, so every situation is different, but I would say if you have a target school that you're looking at, address the financial aid office there first. So, A couple of things I want to point out. Thank you, Zach, for saying this is kind of an overview of the different ways to fund college. Um, Obviously, you know, if you know everything there is to know about funding college, you're probably not even listening to this anymore. But this is really for people who don't have a lot of information about funding for college. These are different things for you to look into. Like the 529 plan, I think is a cool plan. I've never set one up, but then I see here that a grandparent can set up a 529 plan and that money isn't counted against my income or my assets or my kids' income or assets. So that's another thing to look into. I didn't even know grandparents could have a 529 plan. Is my retirement account, my 401k, my IRAs, all of those things, are those assets counted towards my assets for this CSS sheet? Or is it just like my real estate holdings and my after-tax investment accounts? So generally, the, those retirement assets are not a, not a consideration of it. If they are, if functionally, if there's going to be a penalty to access it, generally the schools aren't going to look at that particular piece. But the components of the assets that are after-tax and that you do have access to, they're going to make a judgment as to what percentage of that could you leverage to be able to fund college. So, so there is a distinction there. Again, I think getting that specific answer from that particular college, because some schools are going to interpret those things a little bit differently. 
Okay, that's good to know. So let's say somebody was the co-host of a popular podcast and they didn't max out their 401k, they would be doing themselves a disservice by not maxing out their 401k if say they wanted to have eight kids and put them all through college. Completely hypothetical, 100% go doors. (laughs) So, okay, so we covered a little bit about like the preparation for pre-high school. To be clear, all of my grades from eighth grade and before mean nothing to my GPA, my high school, my college applications, that sort of thing. That's just preparing you to be a good student in high school. Is that correct? Almost completely. Uh, There's a handful, some schools, if a student is taking, let's say if they're taking Algebra 1 in eighth grade, and that's considered a high school course in the school district, that particular course may show up during the eighth grade year onto the high school transcript and may factor into the GPA. But I would say the vast majority of schools that year, it's exactly true. What happened before August of ninth grade year is irrelevant to the academic record, and colleges are only going to begin looking from fall of freshman year on through their senior year. But, but that said, what you said earlier is, is the critical piece here. Nobody gets straight C's all the way through eighth grade and then becomes a straight A student all through high school. I mean, it happens, but it's, you know, it's really got to set that trend in yeah. place in that seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, it sounds like, going into high school to keep that going. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So let's switch over then to high school students. They've done great throughout grade school and middle school because they've got great parents who are really involved and help keeping them on track and doing their math facts. Daphne, we're going to do math facts when I get home today. Every once in a while, she'll listen to the show. She hates doing her math facts. (laughs) My boys as well. Yeah. What are some things we want to start off with in high school? Maybe even just in freshman year of high school. Yeah. So I think it's important, even though, again, it's not expressly tied to the financial, the funding of college, understanding how colleges are making a determination to grant admission, it figures into this conversation. And so understanding that the most important thing that a school is going to look at is going to be a student's high school transcript. And part of that is the grades associated with it, but it's also the rigor of the courses that are selected. So just meaning that a 4.0 GPA is not the same as another 4.0 GPA. If one student is taking all elective courses and the other student is taking multiple honors or AP classes. Those two transcripts are not going to be viewed the same by most schools. Some schools are just going to have a purely numeric review where they say, you've graduated from high school, here's your GPA, and then we'll determine admission based off that. But if a school's diving into the details of a student's academic record, the rigor associated with it and the relative rigor compared to the other students in their school, that matters a lot. So when you're going into ninth grade, starting to think about what are the courses that we want to pursue and then what's the right balance? I think as I've worked with families, ninth grade years are really, really challenging year because you have to be able to evaluate you know, you don't want to be the overzealous parent that's like, man, my kid can do it all. <laughs> and they go and totally load up. And then we get to middle of fall semester and it's like, there's way more tears than we want. And the students pulling straight seats. Now you're like, okay, overcorrected. <laughs> you know, uh, we need to tone it back a little bit. And so finding that sweet spot of an appropriate level of rigor for the student and then also giving them the opportunity to maintain a really solid GPA because that ninth grade year is really important. 
most for many students, if they're applying early, so they apply early in their fall semester of their senior year, there may only be six semesters worth of grades that are being evaluated to dictate that GPA. So you don't want to neglect that ninth grade year. And I tell families, I err on the side of being conservative when it comes to ninth grade year, because I think ninth grade year, your job one is you want a solid GPA foundation. And then sophomore and junior year, then as appropriate for the student, beginning to ratchet up the level of rigor. And if the school has a weighted and unweighted GPA, then that will have a positive benefit to giving them a higher weighted GPA once they get to the point of having their high school transcript reviewed. Yeah, you know, I have an anecdote about this from my my high school. You know, I went to a public high school, but it was pretty competitive in terms of the like who who's going to be at the graduate near the top of the class. I was not in the running for this, but uh, amongst the people who were, you know, one kid managed to put gym in his senior year, right? And because all these classes classes are weighted, so an elective might have been a four point oh GPA. He got an A in that class, but an honors class might have been a four point five possible weight. And then a gifted and talented or a advanced placement course would have been a 5.0, right? Mm-hmm. So this kid took all 5.0 classes for freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and got straight A's. 33 other kids also all got straight A's, but they took Jim as a freshman and he took it as a senior. So he was valedictorian because when they <laughs> d- declared that before the end of senior year, he had the higher weight of the GPA. So it's like... You know, that was a huge controversy. I don't know. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. But that's the kind of stuff that parents probably don't know going in if they're high school, right? They're just like unaware of these these ways to kind of game these things. And like all those other kids could have done the same thing and potentially graduated at the top of the class as co-valedictorians. But because they didn't know that rule or kind of plan ahead and kind of have that going in, even probably into eighth grade, you know, in that summer before high school, they were their kids were unfairly at a disadvantage. Yeah. And I think especially, you know, that dynamic of valedictorian and if you're number one in your class or if you're not, I think, yeah, exactly. At that high end, that can become hyper competitive and you're making a lot of choices. And some of that, my encouragement would be the other 33 kids were still, they put themselves in an incredibly strong position relative to going to college. So, so I think still being in a good place, even though they didn't have to be the one, maybe it was purposeful. They didn't want to be the one having to give the speech at graduation. So (laughs) yeah, that's what they were thinking about summer before eighth grade. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be valedictorian, but I don't really want to give that speech for to have five. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Taking that off the table. Uh, I like to say good for him for thinking ahead and doing that. If that was really like an actual plan that he had, yep. it's kind of smart. He yeah. deserves to be valedictorian if he's going to yeah. think like that. Well, sorry for taking us all off track here, but that was a good story. <laughs> I had to throw that out there. Um, okay, so let's suppose you're not going for valedictorian. <laughs> you know, you're you're thinking, how does my child, who's a good to upper, you know, maybe above average student, how do they, how do we kind of help them? put them in a really good position. You said take a really good set of foundation courses and prepare for that rigor going into sophomore and junior year. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the other component, we'll get to more of this in a minute as far as how we think about the college process and being able to buy cheap credits as it were. But part of you can do, most schools, you can do that in high school based on if there's a dual credit or dual enrollment course, if there's an AP course, typically those classes are going to come with an additional weight for a lot of high schools. But those those classes also pay dividends later because if they can be used for the general ed, once 
once you get to college, I think that ends up being a really smart thing. So the course side of it and being really intentional on building the transcript is kind of step one. The second step when it comes to prepping is that the vast majority of colleges are still going to look to the ACT or the SAT. And so having a really intentional approach on how you manage that and how you prepare for that. I think that's one of the things that um, if a family is not well-informed, I think that ends up being a place where they don't do enough to really, or put enough stock in the influence that that has. And so my general guideline is a student for, on both the ACT and SAT, it is going to test through algebra two math information. So that really indicates when a student should be taking the ACT or SAT. If they are not getting to algebra two until junior year, then they need to wait and not take it, not until maybe the end of their junior year or going into the very early of their senior year. But if a student is taking algebra two as a sophomore, then they can look to take the ACT or SAT really early in junior year. And again, some of that depends on where they're at in their English proficiency, but that's generally true for most students. And then I think based on when you're going to decide to take the test, my recommendation is most students don't have a need to take the ACT or SAT more than three times, but they should plan on taking it multiple times because we see positive results for those students that do. And so then having a calendar of saying, here's where we anticipate taking the ACT or SAT, and then kind of going, looking six months or so before that and starting to layer in some test prep so that a student goes in really to give themselves the best chance possible on those tests. Okay, I've got a couple of questions. The ACT and SAT, when you take it multiple times, I didn't take the SAT, I did take the ACT, and there's like three or four, it's been a while since I did this. <laughs> yeah. Three or four, four subsections. Yeah. yeah, four so subsections. I got really awesome grades in three, and then in mm -hmm. one of them, I did not. I got a six in the math part. If I took the test again, would I keep my three high scores and then have the opportunity to improve my math score? Would they take, like, is it an all or nothing thing or do they take the highest of all the ones that you did? Yeah. So what you're talking about is a term called super scoring. Sounds as cool as it really can be. And where if you've taken it multiple times, do they take the subsection scores and you just get your best? So ACT has been pretty clear that they don't desire for the ACT to be super scored. However, some colleges still do. So uh, like Baylor is an example of a college where they've said, hey, if you take it multiple times, we're going to use your best sub scores and that's what we're going to dictate your scholarships off of. The goal is they want to recruit the kids. So if the kid, if they can use the math to say, hey, this is your best possible situation and now you, that qualifies you for a $4,000 higher scholarship and that makes the difference of you coming to our school, that's a win-win. And so they're going to, some schools will super score. The SAT is more commonly super scored and that just has two subsections now. Uh, so it's out of 1600 points and there's a math section and an English writing reading section, each of which is like 50% of the composite score. Okay. And then a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned dual credit courses. Where are you yeah. finding the information that this is a dual credit course. Is that, does that come from the high school or from the college? 
So in most situations, you need to talk to your high school counselor and understand what the program is at your local high school. Most high schools are going to have partnerships either with an area school or some school that's maybe tied to their association if it's a faith-based school or something like that. And they'll have a program where typically they will have maybe endorsed certain, so like the receiving or the college will say, we guarantee this high school class is really functioning like a college level class. And there will be some college, maybe an area community college that's actually giving a transcript for the courses taken at the high school. So it can be a fantastic thing for kids because, and the other benefit is, unlike the AP score, AP has a one test at the end of the year. And even if the kid is fantastic all year long, if they tank that test on one day in May, they may not get college credit. Whereas with dual credit, it's an evaluation of the grade that a student earned in the class. So for different students, AP may be better for one, dual credit might be better for the other. And many schools will have both programs. And so you just want to make an informed choice about which might be the right situation for your student to pursue. And this would be, this would give an advantage, I would presume, to send, to trying to find a way to send your child to a large public high school versus a smaller one, right? Because they're going to be more likely to have some of these programs and deals with the other community colleges. Is that, is that accurate or is that? Um, so I think that probably was accurate. I feel like I've seen the trend that unless it's, honestly, it's probably more rural schools that have less of that. But if it's in a metropolis, most schools are still going to have these partnerships. But again, if a family is in the process of evaluating what school do I want my student to go to, and if they're having a keen eye towards how are we going to plan this high school phase to then make the, to give us the most options or most flexibility come college, that may be a factor that it informs choosing one school over another. Okay. Okay. Do you recommend paying for test prep courses like these SAT and ACT? I didn't prepare at all, clearly, for my <laughs> test, but yeah. it seems like on the one hand, it seems like a great idea. How much does it cost? How much is the, and it's been so long, I don't even know how much it costs. My parents paid for it. Yeah. But like what does the SAT cost and the ACT to actually sit and take the test? And then what do some of these test prep courses cost? Yeah. So the, the tests themselves, I mean, they end up, it depends on ACT and SAT is a little bit different and they each have an optional writing section that is a little bit more expensive because it's uh, more expensive to score. So, it, you know, roughly plan on 50 to $70 for each time that you take the ACT or SAT. But as far as the test prep goes, it really depends. You know, some of that as a parent is making a really wise decision and knowing your son or daughter based on who they are as a student and how they can study. If a student is self-disciplined and really bought into this process of, I, you know, they want to do the very best that they possibly can, I really don't think that you need to pay for test prep. There's enough resources out there. One of the biggest ones is a couple of years ago, SAT piloted a partnership with Khan Academy, which Khan Academy has a ton of online resources. And essentially, like think about it like as a database of on-demand tutorials. So everything from Algebra 1 to Calculus but they also rolled out a specific SAT test prep that's free. And so if a student is really self-motivated and can be disciplined enough to work through that, that's an incredible resource. But also your local library. I mean, they almost every library is going to have test prep booklets. You know, I said booklets, they're full books that are maybe 600 pages long. And the reality is SAT and ACT 
it's a discrete set of information that's being tested. So if a student works through that, even though that feels like a daunting process of working through a 600-page prep book, if they're disciplined enough, you can just check it out, go through it, and you're ready to go. Most kids, in my experience, they need a little bit more structure. And so part of what the parents are paying for is having a coach that's really guiding them and maybe alleviating the parent writing the kid and creating stress at home and the tutor or if it's in a class, they're the ones that can help motivate the kids and kind of inspire them of, yes, you need to be studying and prepping for this. I, I, you know, I got a crazy question here, but yeah. is the SAT something that you see is best done in a kind of binge right before the test for, <laughs> for two, three, four weeks, maybe a month or two? Uh, or is that something you have to really prepare and keep going after for years for, of, of study for these kids? Yeah. So, I mean, again, it kind of depends on where the kid's at, but if a student is a strong student consistently showing positive results in high school and on other standardized testing that they're taking, then it's probably, it's more, you need to focus on what is the test itself and test taking strategies for that particular test. It's not so much the content. If a student is way behind on the content, then that's going to expand the amount of time that they need to dedicate to it. Because, and this is a play, where, yeah, that student may be able to kind of turn their ship relative to their test score much quicker or easier than they could turn that their academic ship relative to their GPA. Because you can't go back and change what happened in freshman and sophomore year, but you can influence and make significant gains if a student's motivated and attempts to reteach themselves. Ultimately, that then becomes more intrinsically motivated. And if they're invested in it, I mean, I see incredible gains with kids, but that may stretch it out over six or nine months, depending upon how far behind they are. How do you find kids who are not motivated? What are effective ways to motivate them to to take, (laughs) you know, if nothing else, the grade, you know, hey, grades, you know, whatever, but that this test, so much of their future kind of rides in some ways on the results that you kind of get out of this. Is there ways to get them just on board for this test and then back into the high school flow. (laughs) Yeah. So honestly, I mean, this is maybe one of the places that I see the most stress and tension that gets created in the parent child relationship is over this issue Mm -hmm. because I think mom and dad who are potentially paying for this, they see the consequence of the decisions that the student's making and they would love to see the student make a different set of choices. (laughs) You know, they'd love to see them be more motivated. I think it's one of those things that I think you really have to tread lightly at that point, especially when I see families, the kids now 16, 17 years of age, most kids are not going to respond super favorably to the parent that kind of swoops in and they're like, you have got to go do this. They're, they're going to kind of revolt from that and say, screw you, I'm not really in the mood for this right now. And so I think the biggest way that I see it is that the kid has to have a vision for their future and understanding why college is a component of that process. Because if a student doesn't have that intrinsically, then all of this kind of signing a kid up for test prep and just, you know, maybe putting them in the best schools, if they don't have that vision for their future, they're going to ultimately... I think flounder a little bit. And so part of what I recommend is in the ninth and 10th grade year, having, you know, I worked with one family and they called it a vision trip very specifically where ninth grade year, they wanted to get their kids on really good college campuses and to just kind of start dreaming and thinking about, okay, what could college look like? What do you want? You know, what are your strengths? What do we want to be when you grow up? And really casting in that big vision 
And then once the student gets excited about that, then when you're like, hey, here's one, you know, for better or for worse, this is a portion of the process. So let's think intentionally about that. And now the kid understands how test prep fits into that. It doesn't just feel like this ancillary thing that gets layered on top of their teenage life, but instead it's something that has a purpose and they say, okay, I'm ready for this and I'm really willing to put in the work because now I have a picture of what I hope to be when I grow up or what I hope to have this next phase of my life look like. That's really awesome advice. Is I didn't go to my first college visit until, I don't know, 12th grade. And it was just me. My parents didn't go with me. And I liked it. I thought it was really cool. It was on the shore of Lake Michigan, right outside of Chicago. <laughs> kind of difficult to not fall in love with that school. Hopefully you weren't taking that tour in January. That's probably a little different uh, perception at that point of the year. I got another question here, you know, and then I would love to dive into, okay, now that we've got all this covered, how do we actually apply for the scholarships themselves and solve a financial component? But before we get to that, you know, extracurriculars, right? That was huge when I was in high school. Is that, that's got to still be a, a, a central part of the, the planning here outside of grades, your transcript and your SAT, right? Yeah. So again, you know, it depends on the school. So really colleges fall into two batches when it comes to their application review process. You're going to have schools, oftentimes it's maybe second tier public state schools, or it's going to be really, really large schools that they're only going to look at GPA and test score. That's essentially going to be all that they're going to factor in whether or not they admit a student or not. And so if that's the case, they may not care at all about extracurriculars. I don't think that's licensed to then say, don't be involved in anything and only do test prep for three years. I don't think that's good advice just to make good human beings. I think extracurriculars carry a lot of value in just the character development, you know, work ethic, dealing with adversity, which just pays a lot of dividends in who we want these students to become. So the second set of schools are their admissions process is going to be what they call a holistic review where they're evaluating, they're taking into account the GPA and test score, but they're really going to look at the counselor letter of recommendation. They're going to look at the teacher letters of recommendation and the overall resume of where has the student invested their time. And so that is going to be a factor for those schools. That's typically going to be those schools that, especially if they are granting a high level of need-based aid, almost all of those schools are going to be more of that holistic approach. So I think it does still matter. The other thing that I would say is there's, it's not a huge pot of money, but there is money at different schools for leadership-based merit. And so oftentimes the way that kids are demonstrating leadership skills at the high school level is through extracurriculars of some sort, whether it's sports or Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or some kind of community service activities. And so that especially would play most significantly in those leadership scholarships or if there is kind of a full ride scholarship that's a competition-based scholarship that the school offers. Those are really, really important differentiators of kids at that level. Awesome. Okay, before we move on, let's take one last break to hear a word from today's show sponsors. Becoming a Navy Federal Credit Union member could help you earn more and save more. Take advantage of competitive rates with their certificate options or start saving for that next big money milestone with a low minimum deposit. Add money at any time 
and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long-term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe a live-in flip, or feeling ready to consolidate some of that high-interest credit card debt, you could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed-rate home equity loan with zero closing costs, or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses much more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loans subject to approval. You're busy building your retirement accounts and emergency reserve, but what about life insurance? Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. The best time to get a policy? Now since life insurance rates typically increase as you get older. But don't worry, with Policy Genius, you can compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks. Already have a policy through work? It may not offer enough protection. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Their award-winning agents work for you to find the policy that best fits your needs. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. You know, I mentioned earlier in the in the show here that I, uh, you know, I went to a very hyper competitive public high school, and then I wasn't in the top running for a valedictorian, but I did I did fairly well, and I did all of these things, studied my butt off for the SAT, was highly self motivated. I played football, wrestling, lacrosse, all that kind of stuff, and I wasn't unusual in my high school. This was like a lot of the kids there, and then I went I went to a brand name expensive college, right? And I think that was influenced by my high school experience, but I think you've mentioned that you might have a different perspective on the pursuit of that brand name college and it, that might influence people and how they're thinking about that approach. Yeah. So I think your situation is one that a lot of parents aspire to for their kids. They see, you know, 
I don't necessarily want to list all of them off, but I mean, you've got these schools that just have a level of prestige associated with their name. And I think it's easy for, as a parent, to kind of project your hopes onto your kid that that's where your kid is going to end up. And, and for some students, that's absolutely a right fit for them. And they have an incredible experience and it's really beneficial for them. But I think what I see so much of the time is, so a couple of things. In the last 10 years, the landscape of college admission has radically changed. So schools that may have even been brand name schools, if we look back statistically 10, 15 years ago, they may have had a 30 or 40% acceptance rate. Meaning if you applied, you had a three in 10, four in 10 chance of getting in. And now that same school may be all the way down to single digits. And they have so many qualified kids applying that it's, I mean, incredibly difficult to get into these schools. And they are looking for very specific things. So a kid can be perfect in their academic record and still get denied to some of these brand name schools. And so if in the process we've put such a level of emphasis on that school, then it, I mean, it can really be debilitating to a kid's identity, then they don't get in. And so I think it's important to frame this process around, I don't think it's a bad thing to say, hey, I want to shoot for that. And I want to make myself eligible for admission at some of those top schools. But I also want to think about there's this huge gap below kind of these ultra reach schools and your state university. There's a lot of other private schools. There's about 4,500 colleges and universities nationally. And so identifying and getting well-informed on that landscape so that you're building a college list that's really well-rounded. Maybe you have two or three that you've targeted that may be highly selective, but then you also have maybe another five, six, seven that fill that out and are going to be places where you're going to get maybe a lot more money because maybe you get in, but if it's going to be a $65,000 price tag for that school, that might not be great. There's a guy named Frank Bruni. He's done a lot of work on this that he wrote a book called uh, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be. And I think that's an important resource in this conversation to say there is a place for those highly selective schools and you don't want to discount it. They have, I mean, they've transformed America in a lot of ways from the research they've produced and the influence they've had on students' lives. But there's also, you know, that's really maybe 100 schools. So there's 4,400 other institutions that are doing similar work. And I think it's important as a parent not to discount those just because maybe they don't look as good on the placard that goes on the back of your car when you're driving. And so that I don't think is the rationale for why we want to pick a particular school, but we want to identify what is the right fit for each student. What are some things that people should be looking for in a school? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is. And again, that's part of the reason that I encourage engaging in the college process starting in that ninth and 10th grade year, because if you're leaving it up to the kid and they're 16, 17 years old and you're like, where do you want to go to college? They're going to say California or Arizona or someplace where it's warm. They're going to say someplace that's got a really cool football team or basketball team. You know, I mean, they're making decisions, not necessarily based on factors that as an adult, we're like, yes, clearly that's the way that you need to make this critical life choice. And so if you start engaging in that process during ninth and 10th grade year, 
then the student can start to recognize, well, hey, what's the value of a smaller liberal arts community? What's the value of a research institution? What's the value of, hey, I want to be an engineer and I know that, so I'm going to go to a school that actually has engineering. So you've got to be able to be well-informed about the landscape of colleges to then be able to make a well-informed decision. Because if not, then you're just going to go based on your common knowledge. And oftentimes that's sports and geographic location, which I don't think are great factors. No, that's uh, while going to the University of Honolulu would be (laughs) really great today. We're recording this during that uh, horrible polar vortex at the end of January that half of the country is in negative digits. Yeah, that would be a really great place to be today. But yeah, you're right. That's not the best choice for how to choose a college just by based on location, unless you're majoring in surfing. In which place yeah. you're probably not going to college. That uh, or way. if you're majoring in marine biology, like middle of the country might not make sense. Maybe that coastal city is a good choice for that. But you know, oh. but again, if you don't know that, you might just be kind of guessing. Okay, so let's talk about the college application process. I didn't realize that it costs money to apply to a college until sometime last year I heard on the radio that today is free apply to all Colorado Colleges Day. I was like, wait, what? You have to pay to apply? So really, I am starting at less than zero because I'm sure Scott already knew and he doesn't have a kid yet. You have to pay to apply. So let's talk about the application process and any, do you have any ways to save money other than, you know, free Colorado colleges day? Yeah. So, I mean, that is one. The other piece is especially, you know, not highly selective schools, but a number of other schools, they will actually, part of their recruitment process of a student is they may send emails or they may send a mailer that says, here's a waiver and it doesn't cost you any money. And maybe we're going to even waive the essay because, you know, they have ways on the back end to see like a kid's PSAT or other testing. So that may have pre-identified a student to say, you would be a really good academic fit at our school. So they may you may get something in the mail that says apply for free. So that oftentimes will happen. There's also a process where a student can get a fee waiver. So this likely isn't going to be for a family who has reached financial independence, but if a family struggles financially and looking at uh, the different challenges that they have for their student, the, the school's guidance counselor can help determine, you know, so like if they're eligible for free or reduced lunch, they're likely eligible for tuition waivers. And so they say, we don't want that that expense to be an impediment to a student applying. So again, it kind of depends on the student's financial situation. But, you know, so when you sign up or kind of demonstrate interest at a college and say, yeah, I'm interested in your school, then depending upon the school, the school, they may send you a waiver that says, apply for free. We want you to come and learn more about our school. All right. So, you know, you've done everything you can in high school to get good grades, maybe do some extracurriculars, but really focus on the grades and that, and those test scores. And you've gone to a school that maybe is not awarding you any merit scholarships at that point. Are there any other avenues to approach prior to entering college to attempt to get excess funding? You know, you don't qualify for aid and you have to have a merit scholarship. Are there any, any last minute things to be thinking of while going through that transition? Absolutely. So if a 
So let's say the scenario is I do want to go to the name brand school. I'm not going to qualify for need-based aid and the school philosophically doesn't give merit-based aid. That, there's a lot of schools that fit that profile. They only want to use their resources for low-income or medium-income families and make college affordable for them. Then that is the profile of the student that probably should go look at external scholarships. So there are a lot of free resources that a student can go into and search online to be able to identify. And typically they're going to be smaller. I mean, they may be as small as a hundred dollars up to a couple of thousand dollars. So you end up having to stack all of these. Think about it as like extreme couponing, but for college where, I mean, you're going to identify all of these different sources of aid, and then you're really going to attempt to put all of that together. It's, this is a, can, can you, I, you know, some of those, those resources sure. and we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. So when a student is attempting to move down this process, a couple are fastweb.com, capex.com, scholarships.com, college board, who's the same company that has, or that puts out the SAT and AP. They have a thing called bigfuture.collegeboard.org where, so there's all of these different free resources. In general, I would say I don't think scholarships uh, and looking for external scholarships that you'll see if you're doing searches online, you'll see that there's a lot of places that want to charge you to help you find that money. I personally haven't seen that work really well with kids. And I think there's a the issue is they want to open up access to higher education. So I don't think it's something that you really need to be paying money for. With one exception, there is a app that is called My Scholly, S-C-H-O-L-L-Y. And it has like a $3 a month charge, but it's almost like match.com, but for scholarships where you go in and you put in all of your biographical information and then they kick out and say, okay, based on potential major, based on maybe your ethnicity, your geographic background, all of these other factors, here's a list of scholarships that you may be eligible for. And they make it really easy to apply online. So that's one, but the, you know, the expense of it is so, so cheap that that to me isn't a big deal, but like these other services that are charging hundreds or thousands of dollars to help find it. I think that might not be the best return on an investment for families. So if I'm thinking through this, what, you know, I'm pursuing financial independence. My kid's about to go to college. They got into a pretty good school. It's going to be very expensive and we're not going to qualify for aid. My next step is son or daughter. Here's a list of hundreds of places that offer small scholarships, anywhere from one to $5,000. You're going to be writing about a hundred essays over the next month. And you're going to be applying <laughs> for every single one that you beat the qualification for. And you're going to do a really good job because this is going to make a major difference in the financial profile of what this is going to look like for college and get to work. Is that what you're saying is basically the, the path there? So I think it can be. I think that's one path. I think the second uh, or maybe an alternate path to it that in some ways I think may be more attainable or replicable for families is that you look at, you know, I like to talk with families about buying cheap credits. So I think when you look at the school's transfer credit policy and trying to understand there are some schools that if an undergraduate degree is 120 credits, they will allow you to transfer into their school up to 90 credits. Now that's kind of rare, but many schools will allow you to transfer 60 credits. Some schools will, will restrict it to 30 credits. Some of the really high-end exclusive schools may not allow any transfer credits. But if it is a school that has a lenient transfer policy, 
then I think you start to evaluate, how can I really establish the ways to be able to buy the cheapest credits possible? And so that's where you go back to the AP, the dual credit. One that I'm a total fan of is CLEP test. So with a CLEP test, you go $87, you take a test, and depending upon the test and the school's policy for CLEP, you may be able to get six credit hours for one test, you know, so a couple hours of time, 87 bucks. I mean, that is about the cheapest possible credit that you can buy. You know, I mean, to think about buying college credit at $14 per credit, as opposed to hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for different state universities or private colleges, that's the kind of place where if you can start bundling and you're reducing your overall cost and potentially reducing your overall time in school, that makes a huge difference on the bottom line and essentially is a way to buy college for, for a discount. Is the CLEP test a test that you take at the end of a course or do you just say, I want to take the CLEP test? And they're like, here you go. Do you have to study? Is there a way to study? Clearly, I didn't take any of these. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of all of the above. So if a student is in a, let's say, a high school that's preparing them really well, and maybe they're not in a dual credit or AP course, but the rigor of that class is really high, they may have a significant amount of the knowledge that would show up on that CLEP test. And then you can identify, and there's guides online that say, here's everything that is covered on this test or the, the domains of the content area that you need to study. And that's the kind of thing where for a lot of kids, even if it means they're studying five or six hours a week for a couple of weeks and to get other information on the topic area that they didn't get in the class, they can go and access it themselves and go in and test. Some of this is also, if a kid is really good at test taking, CLEP is a great option. If the kid's not good at test taking, and we've, you know, by this point in their educational career, we know if they're much more, you know, maybe they're a better writer or presenter, they're not a great test taker. If they're not a great test taker, don't force it with CLEP. That's probably, there's other avenues that you can go down. But if they are a great test taker, man, this is a way of like potentially eliminating years of college just based on investing in these, uh, you know, these short tests that you take to demonstrate that I already have this knowledge and I don't need to spend an entire semester or years worth of time in class. Yeah. And, and another thing, you know, I didn't take, I didn't have CLEP. I wasn't aware of it and didn't do any of that, but I did take a lot of AP credits in high school. And what that allowed me to do transferring them into college was dual major and double minor. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and a couple yeah. of things that I was interested in. And that was, you know, that made that a lot easier on that. You know, one of my big regrets is I didn't knock out Spanish uh, in <laughs> high school. And then I went three years without studying Spanish, had to take it senior year of college. It was brutal. But that kind of stuff, <laughs> yeah, exactly. like, if you can get that, if you can get that done ahead of time, you can take the relevant courses that are relevant to the career you're focusing on as well and stack up more and more and more in a four-year degree if you still want to go to college for those four years, I think. Exactly. And I think a school like Vanderbilt often, you know, that profile of school usually won't take a CLEP test. So you have to look at the individual school. But I had a student that went to Georgia Tech and they carried in with them a ton of AP courses, a ton of dual credit courses, I think in the neighborhood of like 50 hours when they got to college. And it was the exact same thing. They were able to study abroad. They were able to do a prolonged paid internship. I mean, you just, you give yourself more flexibility. So for some students, they're going to want to use that flexibility to get out of school as cheap and as quickly as possible. For other students, it gives them the flexibility to not be constrained by their graduation outline that they have to do for the school, but they're able to have a greater level of flexibility. 
This is awesome. And Scott, I want to correct you. You said that you would tell your child, okay, go write a hundred essays. My cousin Julia is in her first or second year of college. And she sat down with her mom and had her mom would say, okay, the, re- the requirements for this are a 400 word essay on X. You already wrote a 500 word essay on that. So go and like edit out that and we'll submit that. So you don't always yeah. have to write 500 or a hundred essays, but yeah, I mean, a, one really great essay can be like, you could just use that over and over again. And one of my favorite stories for paying for college was this girl's her mom came to her in ninth grade and said, if you want to go to college, you're going to have to pay for it all on your own because I have no money. And the girl, my ninth grade self would not have done this, but she said, okay, this is now my job for the next four years. My job is to get as much money for college as possible. And she ended up with something like a million dollars in scholarships, which itself is just amazing. But she said, every time I write an essay and it takes me three hours to write this essay, but I just got myself you know, $3,000, I just made myself $1,000 an hour. And painting your mindset and having your kids like really understand how awesome this is, it goes back to that tip of going to the, the college and seeing what your life could be like and just, you know, encouraging them all throughout the whole course and, you know, starting early is fantastic. And, and I'll call yeah. myself out here. I was a jerk my parents encouraged me to do that and I did not do nearly enough of it. And I'm sorry. So throw that out there. I, you know, you'll look back on your life and feel very bad about that. If you don't do that, if you're in high school and not doing that yes. or in college even. So. Yes. Yes. To all you kids that are listening now, cause your parents are making you, this is going to change your whole life and yeah. go back and listen to Travis Hornsby in episode 22, where he's talking about people who have soul crushing amounts of college student loan debt that they can't ever pay off. And a few hours out of your life is going to change your life dramatically. And you're not even going to remember those few hours being terrible. Yeah. One uh, quick note, I mean, kind of as another avenue of that, that really resource for scholarship is there are a lot of places where we would just consider maybe kind of starter jobs that are also going to have educational benefits that come along with it. So even during high school or into college, being intentional of where do I want to go and work and what are the criteria that maybe I could use some of this part-time employment or if I take a gap year or don't immediately go into school use my workplace as an avenue to be able to access more money. So companies like UPS, Home Depot, Verizon, Starbucks, Lowe's, they have these places where pretty accessible places to go and work. They're going to have pretty significant educational benefits. In my opinion, one of the ones I've recommended to a lot of kids is with UPS, you can be a part-time package handler. And I think of working as low as like 12 or 15 hours a week. So not super significant hours or kind of impact to your time. And it ends up coming with 5,250 bucks annually in scholarship dollars up to $25,000 for your lifetime. So if it is that student that their parent says, hey, we can't provide for college or we're not going to be able to and we want you invested, this is the kind of thing that I think is really has a really significant potential for a lot of students to say, this is a way where I can make a really strong return. I can be invested in my education through the work that I'm doing. I even think things like 
choosing to be a resident assistant if you're living in a traditional four-year college that has dormitories. I mean, there's different outlets like that where you can significantly defray the cost of education. And it's a way really of being invested in that process. And I think that's helpful for a kid. I think that gives them a level of ownership about their educational process that bears a lot of dividends. That UPS job is way outside the box thinking. Uh, <laughs> He's here all day, people. Yeah, that's right. All the time. Okay. What about community colleges? I went to a community college just because my grades were terrible and I needed to bring them up in order to get into my fashion design college. Um, yeah. So community it, colleges are like, well, I'm going to date myself horribly. They're like $50 a credit. They're incredibly cheap. You know, that's very much dependent upon the state and different states have different philosophies as far as how well they fund community colleges and public colleges. So all across the country, it's going to be wide. You're going to see a wide, wide range as far as what the expense is. But that's the place, you know, if a student's not a great test taker necessarily, community college can be a fantastic outlet to start building that credit, demonstrating that they're performing well And then being able to transfer into another school or dependent upon what your goals are, some of the community colleges and local technical colleges, that may be all you need. And you really need an associate's degree. And maybe it's, I want to start down the track of being an electrician, being a welder. I mean, some of these jobs where you can be 24, 25 years old and maybe making 80 some thousand a year, depending upon market and job. And you're not having to spend four years sitting in classes, learning about, you know, whatever your particular subject matter is that you hate the most. You don't have to do that. And you can dive right into maybe a vocational career. The community and technical colleges are, I mean, they perform an incredible service to be able to open up jobs for students. Okay, so we've talked about scholarships. We've talked about need-based scholarships and merit-based scholarships. Let's say that your kid is a terrible student and you have, you're rich and your kid is terrible. Um, <laughs> or let's say that you don't qualify for need or merit-based and you're just getting loans and grants. First of all, let's define what a loan and a grant is. A grant is somebody just gives you money. It's like a scholarship, right? You don't have to pay that back. Right. Grants, you're not having to repay. Loans, you do have to repay. So understanding that difference. So typically, when a student goes through the college application process, with most schools, they'll get admitted or denied. They'll get that information first. And then maybe within a few weeks, maybe within two or months or so, then they'll end up getting the financial aid package from the school. That letter, especially, you know, as a parent, that's a much more important letter (laughs) than just the (laughs) accept or denied. The kid's excited about the accepted and denied. The parent really cares about the financial aid package. Being able to understand, okay, what is the federal grants? So things like Pell Grant or the GI Bill, As a parent, you're going to know that based off of the FAFSA or if you had prior military experience. But the merit-based aid from the school, that will show up on there. So if it's a, you know, some may call it the provost scholarship or whatever the school's colors are, (laughs) you know, it's like, here's the crimson and gold scholarship. You know, they'll have different names and it's got a value amount with it. Typically, those scholarships that are going to come from the school, the student has to keep a certain GPA. Maybe it's a 2.5, a 3.0, a 3.5. It's going to depend on the school. But that, but that money is typically 
good for four years. You need to look at that and know, is this renewable or is this a one-time scholarship? Sometimes those one-time scholarships, there's most schools don't do this in my experience, but some schools will kind of front load the aid package and give a really nice package for freshman year. And then sophomore year, certain money goes away and you're, as a family, you're left totally frustrated. So really splice that, that award letter and understand what's grants, what's money I'm not going to have to pay back and really just cuts the cost of education. But then what are the loans? Some schools, and really I would almost say most schools are going to bundle loans into that aid package. So it's a little bit deceiving in that you can't just look at that bottom line number and say, okay, this is how much it's going to cost for my kid. Because for most families, they are going to make a critical decision of do we want to take that loan or not take that loan. And so you've really got to examine where's the money coming from? Is it renewable? So is this good for four years? And how are loans factored into it? Also, how are work study, how is that factored? Because sometimes they'll list a federal work study program. And that can be, you know, in my opinion, it's oftentimes going to be better for the student maybe to go work for a place like UPS or some other uh, company that's going to give an educational benefit than it is to do the work study where it's just going to be probably a minimum wage job at the school. Okay. And I want to clarify subsidized and unsubsidized loans because I didn't know this was a thing either. My sister-in-law had a mix of both. I just want to glance over this quickly. What is the difference in that? And where does it say that this is a subsidized or unsubsidized loan? It should list it. It should be line itemed in the aid package that says, here's the maximum subsidized loan that you qualify for. Here's the maximum unsubsidized loan that you qualify for. So subsidized, that's a federal loan product. So when we hear and think about like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, those are, or not that, I'm sorry, with like Department of Education loans, they are going to subsidize a portion of that interest rate. So it's going to be at a lower interest rate that the student is going to repay in the long run, as opposed to an unsubsidized loan, meaning it's going to be calibrated to the prime and it's going to be at a higher amount. So subsidized, I think right now is maybe those loans are maybe at about 6%. An unsubsidized loan might be a little bit higher, like a 7 or 8% interest rate. And doesn't that start accruing instantly versus waiting until the end you've graduated? So, yeah, so different loan products have different guidelines around that. Some won't start accruing interest until you're done with school. Some, you will be accruing interest. So even if you borrowed $10,000, even though you're not making repayments on it, the interest for that time period that you're in school and not making payments is building on that. So you get done with school and maybe your principal balance now is actually $10,500. That may be some of what you see. Depends on whether the loan's in deferment or not, those sorts of things. Okay. Well, well actually, one, one thing that I do want to ask about is all of this presumes from the first place that the goal is to get a college education and that's in there. You know, we haven't bothered to, to take any time of that talking about that. I obviously believe in the college education path. Uh, that I took and all that kind of stuff. Have you noticed there's any shifting in that thinking lately? Or is that kind of, uh, do you think that's going to continue to be in place? That clearly the goal of middle school, high school, all of that is to prepare for average and above average students to get them into a college in an affordable way so they can go into the workforce. Is that a foundational assumption, correct? 
I think that is a fun foundational assumption that most people have, but I think the emphasis that has been placed on college specifically and being college ready uh, and the, and the historically that has been an incredibly effective tool of moving people out of poverty, out of low income and providing a level of opportunity that they may not have had. I think the challenge for a lot of folks is that the increasing cost to be able to access that opportunity starts to change the calculation for some people. Because if it's going to saddle me with debt for decades, then the marginal benefit of that may not be there. I'm also taking four years out or longer, and I'm not going and being in the workforce. And I think the other piece, and this is the challenge, is that I think dependent upon the student of a So, I mean, the traditional skilled trades are incredibly valuable, right? I mean, my wife and I built a house recently and I was talking with our electrician and we had an electrician that was 24 years old and he was making $83,000 a year. That's ridiculously good money, (laughs) you know, and... And he's not stuck behind a desk. He's, I mean, they were joking, being an electrician, they were saying is better than being these other trades because they're like, we're inside. We don't have to work in bad weather nearly as much as these other guys. Now, you potentially, if you don't do your job right, you get electrocuted. So there's some uh, risk that's associated with it. But there's really value in that or being a carpenter, being a plumber. I mean, there's all of these other trades, auto mechanic that have a lot of value. And especially if somebody's entrepreneurial, if they have a good sense of business, it may be that an associate's degree from that local community college is going to set the student up incredibly well. So, so I think your point is really astute that we don't want to just drive that process and say we need to, it's college or bust. But my goal with families is I want them to get to senior year and they have all options open. If a student makes an informed choice at 17 or 18 and says, I want to go this path and I think this is what I'm really geared towards, that's awesome. That's a great choice. What I don't want to have happen is you get to the end of high school, things haven't been put in place, and now you don't have an option. You feel like that's the only thing you can go do. That, I think, is a place that breeds resentment and that ultimately they don't want to be in the long run. So, But if it's a willful choice, I think that's a great option. Nice. So I, I think this has been a fantastic discussion. And my takeaway, you know, all the way back to the beginning is like this starts as, you know, in the early days or even before you even have a child, right? It is really where it begins. Like if I can pull a Brandon Turner and buy that fourplex <laughs> and finance it in a 15 year note, you know, I've taken care of all of this before they're even born. Right. And, yeah. and it's going to, it's going to be a, a huge luxury when it comes to the decision-making down the line, fast forwarding, it's, taking an active role in your child's education, teaching them math and reading, right? And getting all that kind of stuff. And then going into all the tips and tactics that we get into in high school. But it really seems like this war, whatever the, the journey really needs to be begun in elementary school and into middle school and really kind of get the force there. It's much harder afterwards to kind of get the wheels turning, but not impossible, of course. Is right. that a kind of good way to think about it? And, yeah, very succinct summary, yes, yeah. sir. Awesome. <laughs> Zach, this has been amazing. And I'm personally very excited that you sent me this note because I'm going to use all of this stuff. I'm going to go home and make my daughter listen to this and she's going to love it. Hi, Claire. Um, and I know we've discussed a ton of things today and we're going to put links to all of these fabulous programs and websites and apps that you mentioned on the show. We're going to put them all in the show notes, which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash money show 64. 
Okay. I think it's time now for our famous four, the same four questions and demand that we ask all of our guests. Zach, are you ready? Oh, I'm so prepared. That's good. Oh, that means that you probably have a joke. Uh, What is your favorite finance book? Yeah, so I gave this a lot of thought. And ultimately, I went back to a book that I haven't read in probably 20 years. So I really can't speak to whether or not it's good anymore or relevant or not. But I just know it was impactful for me. And that was The Automatic Millionaire uh, by David Bach. It was really the first finance book that I read when I was really young. And I feel like it's most simple lesson is make it all automatic. Your your retirement deductions, put all of that away, which I feel like is great because then I can be an idiot with my finances and I've already protected myself by paying myself first. So I've been thankful for that, that advice that I received early on. It is still a valid book. Okay, good. You're the expert on that, not me. <laughs> What was your biggest money mistake? And I'm going to throw in a second one here. What is the biggest money mistake that you see families, maybe of the type that we were just talking about making? Yeah. So as I was thinking about this, I would have to say that I think my biggest money mistake, ultimately, I ended up buying a car on payments when I was in high school. And I think that set up just kind of an approach for how I use debt that was that, you know, even in some ways still working to unravel. And so I think just it set in process some habits for myself that probably shouldn't have had or didn't, you know, wasn't as efficient as I could have been with my money. The second kind of part to be on that as far as uh, how to be able to, what I see with families is I would say it probably goes to this issue of name brand colleges. I think it's the families that identify schools that are probably priced too high and that maybe it's tying too much identity or too much pride in a particular school and then making a choice that ultimately they're taking a level of debt that's not, maybe not the best choice for them in the long run. Awesome. Yeah, that's great advice. Who was it? Scott, I've been trying to think who it was. I think it was Travis Hornsby who said that he had gotten this amazing scholarship from somebody from a college, but then it turned out to be even cheaper to go to this other college that gave him less or even none because the original college was so expensive. It might've been Travis. I can't remember that one. Oh, maybe I just made it up then. Zach, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Yeah. So when I was a high school student, I don't feel like I listened to my mom nearly enough, but I would give my mom this credit of, I feel like I've come back to this advice and counsel that she's given me and I give to families that I work with all the time. It's that every decision that you make opens or closes doors. Every decision that you make opens or closes doors. So the wise person makes decisions that opens doors. I think as you go through this educational process, this is really true, right? The choices that you're making in elementary, in middle school, high school, college, beyond, all of those provide more or less opportunities for you as you get older. And so just really being intentional on what, how are you making those choices and living a wise life in that regard. That is a brilliant quote. Hey, my mom. (laughs) Mrs. Gautier, that's awesome. (laughs) Yes. All right. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? 
Okay, so I have three little boys. They're not little anymore, 13, 11, and 8. And they were so excited about this particular question, and they have been giving me nothing but jokes. So my favorite dad pun is, so I'll give you a dad pun and an actual joke. I had a stepladder. I never met my real ladder. So <laughs> I always like that. It made me laugh. Uh, my kid's favorite joke that I tell, though, is uh, a man's hiking through the forest. He ends up going into this cave. Inside the cave, he finds a magic lantern. And so he rubs the lantern, out pops the genie. And he's like, my day is made. This is so exciting. So the genie tells him, here's the rules of this lantern. Every, you get one wish, but there's an exception. Whatever you wish for, your mother-in-law is going to get double. Whew, the guy's thinking, he's like, man, this is, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So finally, he thinks he's got it. And he turns to the genie and he's like, I want to be scared half to death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> It's both a mother-in-law joke and a math joke. So, <laughs> Perfect. That's what you can work on with your children when you're preparing them for the SAT. And yeah, exactly. There you go. You're obviously My already on top of this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Well, hello, little yeah. Gautiers. Yes. Thank uh, you for the awesome joke. What was, exactly. what was the runner-up, though? What was, oh, what was, oh, what was yes. the next joke? Yeah, you've got three uh, kids that only told one joke. Yeah, yeah. So I found this one funnier than they found it. They were kind of like, Dad, that's not that funny. Uh, what did the janitor say when he jumped out of the closet? Supplies! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I side with your boys. <laughs> <laughs> I find okay. that hilarious. <laughs> okay, Zach. Ah, that was, that was fabulous. But I'm bummed. So, so this guy, this guy, by the way, I, I, this, I just thought of, it, thought of this. Um, yeah. This guy is asking to uh, take off so he can visit his mother-in-law, right? And the boss says, certainly not. You cannot do that. You know what the guy says? Thank you so much. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you for understanding. That's, no, on the mother. Perfect. That's all. I, to be clear, I have a great mother-in-law. I love <laughs> So I feel like that needs to go on the record. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you had a great re relationship with your mother-in-law <laughs> until she hears this. Uh... These jokes are so, so relatable to all of the high school and middle school students that are going to be listening yeah, exactly. to this episode. Yeah, so, all yeah, the high school. I'm going to relate directly to mother and father-in-law. So. Yes, they're yes. all looking at their parents. Mom, I can't believe you made me listen to this. Yeah. Uh, okay, Zach, tell us where people can find out more about you. <laughs> Yeah, so I would say the best place is probably at my website. So triplefitcc.com, triplefitcc.com, or triplefitcc at gmail.com, just to shoot me an email. Because really, when I think about the college process, it's an issue of there's three factors that I think are incredibly important. It has to be the right financial fit, social fit, and academic fit. If those three things aren't aligned for a student, they may get into the best school or get into any number of different schools that are great for some kids, but not great for them and their family. That is, you know what? That's really, really, really important. It's like you've done this before. Yeah, a few <laughs> times. 
Awesome. Okay. We will put links to that in the show notes as well. Again, you can find the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash money show 64. Zach, this was huge. This was so helpful. I know that we're just starting uh, middle school in my family, but I am definitely going to be checking these show notes and back in the listening to the show again in a couple of years when it's time to start thinking about college. God, I feel old. Scott like <laughs> just graduated from college and I've got a kid who's getting ready to go into college. I know. I know. Uh, well, honestly, I, it is my joy to be able to share that, you know, this resource that I have, but I so appreciate you all. It's been a fun journey for myself of getting to listen to every episode. And so I feel like a, you know, a total fanboy, but appreciate the opportunity to get to share this, this little section of it that I really know. Well, we're glad you love the show and thank you so much for adding so much value to today's show. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we will talk to you again soon then, Zach. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, that was Zach Gautier. Wow, I thought that was pretty impressive. He's obviously studied this subject for a entire career and knows everything you can want to know about this. Yeah, yeah, it's like he's done this before. One of my biggest takeaways from this, actually several of my biggest takeaways from this is, you know, look at transfer credit options. And I would even go a step further and say, if you have a couple of colleges that you're considering, look at the transfer credit options and see, you know, if one only allows, like Zach said, some allow like 30 or even zero and others allow up to 90. If you're like kind of on the fence and you've got a college that offers 90 credit courses to transfer in, maybe that could be the deciding factor, especially if you're having trouble, like really deciding Also intentionally choosing where to work can give you scholarships, intentionally choosing as a high school kid. Frankly, it didn't matter to me that I was working at, you know, Dairy Queen or McDonald's. I could have worked at Home Depot and that would have given me a better start off on my uh, house flipping anyway. But just the amount of options available, if you just put a little thought into it, is really one of the biggest takeaways from this whole episode. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is just the tangible dollars and cents that result from studying hard, getting good grades and acing these ridiculously important tests, the ACT and the SAT, right? I mean, like that is real dollars and real stakes for high school. Those of you listening that are in high school or or about to enter it, if you don't apply yourself there, that's going to be a a limit your options. It's going to close doors and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, we spent a lot of time on that because it sounds like that's the fundamental here. Everything else is a tactic, right? Everything else is a, a tip and a trick and a way to, to mitigate some of these costs and kind of come out through there, right? That is the fundamentals that you got to apply over the course of that time to figure this out and have the best shot to get started on a really good playing field in adult life, achieve financial freedom. Right. And it starts in grade school, If your kids are in grade school and you're thinking, oh, this doesn't really apply to me. Yes, it does. Work on their reading, work on their math. If you can't help them with their math in grade school, in junior high, in high school, I'm so glad my husband can help with the algebra because that's not my thing. But if neither of you can help, then get extra help outside of your family because this is the thing that's really going to determine how much money your college is going to give you. And, you know, nobody is clamoring for those D-minus students. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to take 100% accountability for your students' grades, and your student has to take 100% accountability for his or her grades. So yeah. 
Yeah. So at the end of this show, we said goodbye to Zach and then we continued to talk to him for a few minutes and he offered to answer questions in one of our forum threads, just kind of a Q&A. He's going to pop on for the rest of this week and answer any questions that you have or try to answer any questions. I can't promise that he's going to be able to answer your questions. But so if you go to biggerpockets.com slash college Q, that's biggerpockets.com slash college Q, that will take you to a forum where Zach will answer your college questions. Yep, that's a new thing we're trying out. I think it'll be very exciting. So excited to see what people come up with. Yeah, I'm really excited. So yeah, uh, and then- We'll start off with what the third joke was that he was going to call me. <laughs> Probably another bad one. No well, offense, They Zach. were great. They were- you're, you're insulting his kids, not him. The kids' jokes were great. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I actually did man. like the stepladder joke. That was kind of funny. Right. Okay, Scott, this went super long, so we should get out of here. Are you ready? Let's do it. From episode 64 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he's Scott Trench. I'm Mindy Jensen, and we are gone, baby, gone. Becoming a Navy Federal Credit Union member could help you earn more and save more. Take advantage of competitive rates with their certificate options or start saving for that next big money milestone with a low minimum deposit. Add money at any time and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe a live-in flip, or feeling ready to consolidate some of that high-interest credit card debt, you could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed-rate home equity loan with zero closing costs, or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses much more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loans subject to approval. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.